Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Today we'll be reading two uh, verses from the book of Joel. The first one from Joel 1, 1 to 4. And the second one from Joel 2, 12 to 32. The word of the Lord uh, that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, O elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Joel 2, 12 to 32. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God? Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rearguard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain, as before. The threshing floor shall be full of grain, the vat shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God. He has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls.
Hi there, Happy New Year. My name is Howard. It's my privilege to be the pastor here at Westminster Chapel and everyone is welcome in our church family. We're a church of all sorts of shapes, colours and sizes and we trust if you're new to us that you would find a home in our church family. Today I want to begin this New Year message by asking you a question. What's your most hated gadget? You could pop an answer to that in the chat. Join in, be part of the community today. They've actually done surveys on this and high up the list would be the subwoofer. Because of the noise it generates, vibrating your, your flat, you know, it's like, oh, this neighbor is so noisy and annoying because of the subwoofer. Or it could be capture. Do you know that thing that asks if you're a robot? Well, are you a real person? And it's got that little box of, of letters that are all jumbled up and you kind of put them in and you're not quite sure. And, oh, no, I got it wrong again. It still doesn't believe I'm a real human being. <laughs> But I think perhaps the most hated gadget out there that I've heard about is the alarm clock. Now yours probably doesn't look like this. I suspect it's that parasite leeching device uh, that we call the mobile phone. Um, and you're not pressing a snooze button, but you're, you're kind of swiping it off. But many people hate the alarm clock. Waking, how dare it wake me up from my blissful sleep and slumber. Ah. But is the alarm clock that bad? In order to get us out of enjoying the horizontal aspects of life, it wakes us up so we can enjoy all of the vertical aspects of life. It has a really important function, I think. And I'm saying that because prophets, like the prophet Joel, and you've just heard a bit of his prophecy read to you, they function like alarm clocks, spiritual alarm clocks. Now, you may be tempted to hit the snooze button, you know, oh, maybe he's just exaggerating. He's just, you know, just, just it's, it's hyperbole. He's just making, you know, making it sound worse than it is. Well, I'll be all right just staying in bed for a little bit longer. What harm could that do? But I want to encourage you not to hit the snooze button this morning, today, whatever time that you're watching this, because this is no human alarm clock. This is God's living and active word and he's speaking to wake up his church from any spiritual slumber that we have allowed to come over us to make us fully alert to his voice, fully attentive to his purpose and fully alive, living the abundant full life that he has called and is calling us to as we start this brilliant become term as a church. I just say that become season that we're entering. Have you signed up for your become course? I hope you have. We're going to start those pretty soon. They're going to be amazing, absolutely amazing. Now, there's some bad news that we need to face here that comes um, from the prophet Joel. We've got to face the music in order to really dance. We've got to deal with reality. Now, Joel is writing at a point that no one's really certain about. Uh, they don't really know. No one can really date exactly when Joel's prophecy is meant to have taken place. We can't know that with certainty. But what we can know with certainty, he's writing about a crisis a plague of locusts coming that could be literal, could be spiritual, metaphorical, could be an invading northern army coming down. But without doubt, they are causing extraordinary destruction. They are cutting, they're destroying lives and livelihoods. And he's trying to wake the church up. He's trying to like knock on the door of their hearts. Hello. He's shouting out, hear this. Give ear, everybody. Do you get how grave the crisis is that's going on around us? 
And then he asks this powerful question. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? We're living through a global pandemic, a crisis that never happened before in our lifetimes or in the lifetimes of our parents. And it is cutting and destroying, wreaking havoc on people's lives directly, causing death and suffering and illness immediately and longer term effects. And it's going to have ripple effects indirectly that are going to go on for years. Is COVID-19 our plague of locusts? We have a mental health crisis going on right now. According to the Office of National Statistics, the, the rates of depression, which were high before, have now doubled. We have a justice crisis. DIY, do-it-yourself abortion, is now available. You can have an abortion on demand at home. But now newspapers are reporting that more than 10,000 women have had to be hospitalized because of the side effects. There's a justice crisis. People are dying trying to get into our countries in, in the seas and the waters around us. There's also a crisis in the church and surveys in America report that last year 4,000 churches closed and 20,000 pastors left the ministry. And at one point, I think surveys were saying something like 50% of pastors, it's now 34% in America, were seriously considering quitting, giving up. It's just been The pressures of leadership through the pandemic have just been overwhelming. David Kinnaman, who's the president of Barna, a significant research group, he says that during and after the pandemic, about one third of practicing Christians disengaged from their congregation. They just sort of stopped showing up. Is it any different in the United Kingdom? There's a global crisis, there's a national crisis, there's a church crisis, but there's also been a personal crisis. Many of us, I think, have lost meaning. We've, there's a sense of a loss of purpose, a, a loss of confidence, a, a loss of closeness to God, and an increase in guilt and shame and doubt and discouragement. For me, things have been unearthed in the pandemic, like this pride, this saviour complex, thinking that where things are broken and people are saying, I need help, I can, oh, I can do that, I can do that, but I can't do that. Where do we go from here? Well, Joel has five important things to say to us, to give us hope, to set us free, to empower us, to help us detox as we start this new year. So that we can begin anew in 2022 for the glory of God. And the first point is deep penitence. Are you cut to the heart by sin? Your own and the world around you. Joel chapter 2 verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, not half-heartedly, with all your heart, with depth, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and render, rend your hearts, the, the deep part of you, not just your garments, not just externals, not just something superficial, but, but with reality, deep penitence. I remember a great scene from the film Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, and he has to interpret this clue, only the penitent man may pass, and he's seen people go through this kind of hall of doom before to face this test of the, the whisper, the breath of God. And what happens is they go through and that you see these 
really bad. It's probably why I liked it as a kid for all the wrong reasons, but their heads kind of come rolling out. And he realizes that only the penitent may pass means, only the penitent person, penitent man may pass means that you must get down on your knees before God in order to enter into his presence. There's a humility to this that's required. And it speaks to me and reminds me here that we've got to get on our knees and humble, genuine repentance and confession of sin before God. Otherwise, spiritually, our proud heads are going to get knocked off. We must engage in real repentance, not worldly sorrow, not the false repentance of Esau who cried over the selling of his birthright because he was upset at the loss of that and the consequences it caused himself. We must not try and admit our sins like Saul who even says and confesses, I have sinned. Yeah, he's not cut to the heart over that. He just wants the prophet Samuel to come with him to save, so he can save face before the people. He doesn't care about the sin he's really done before God. He just cares about his reputation. You can read about it in 1 Samuel chapter 4. 15. Now we're called to rend our hearts, not just our garments, to real deep repentance. Are you in denial about that? Are you doing that? Are you getting on your knees spiritually and crying out to God for mercy and forgiveness for the wrongs that we've done him, the ways that we've blasphemed him for living the lives that don't truly honor him and and glorify him, how we're part of the problem? And then I want to ask, are we doing that with fasting. Did you notice that? That's the first thing. Return to me. But with with fasting, I have to say, in preparing this message some weeks back, that's just so neglected in my life. I felt challenged by that. So I I started to fast again and sense a power in God and an assurance, a, a, a sort of confidence coming spiritually through this great practice. Jesus says in Matthew chapter six, not if you fast, but when you fast. I believe that means that his expectation for every believer is that we as his followers are engaging in this discipline, this practice of of fasting. Now it's not no fasting then, but it's new fasting as well. It's not fasting quite the same way perhaps that it happened before. We're not fasting out of an emptiness, but having tasted something of the beauty of Christ, we're we're fasting for more of the fullness of that. It's not that food is evil. We recognize that as a good gift, but we're saying Christ, Jesus, God is so much better than that. I love the way that John Piper talks about this in his excellent book on fasting. He says, In this age, there is an ache inside every Christian that Jesus is not here fully and intimately and so powerfully and gloriously as we want him to be. We hunger for so much more. And that is why we fast. We're fasting because we're saying I'm not satisfied with sin in my life or the sin in the world around me. And I'm crying out for God's mercy for him to move in power through me, through the church, through Westminster Chapel that we might see him given greater glory through the way that we live. In fact, the absence of fasting may speak volumes about the spiritual state of our hearts. We just don't care enough. We just, I don't mind the status quo. Who cares? It's all right. What does it matter? And there's a challenge coming prophetically to say, come on. Will we get down and engage in real repentance with fasting? That's the first point, and I think it's significant enough for us to pause, to sell up, to stop, to think, 
take a moment to respond and to genuinely get on our knees in repentance. We're going to have a moment just before we come to break up the sermon with, with a time to worship. But I would like you at home to take a moment to get on your knees. And as I pray, that you would pray yourself a prayer of repentance. Where has sin gone wrong in your own heart? That we might grieve sin more than punishment. We might grieve sin to see it as the odious evil that it is. That we might find it so much easier to turn from it in the power of the Spirit. Lord God, I thank you so much that you are a God who's not just full of majesty, but is full of mercy. And I come to you and we come to you and we acknowledge our sin before you, where we have been proud, where we have been arrogant, where we have been indifferent, where we have been full of apathy and without compassion for those around us, where we have been living for ourselves where we have made church about us rather than about your glory. Forgive us, Lord. Cleanse us, Lord. Help us to repent of our weak and shallow worldly repentance. Help us to rend our hearts, not just our garments, to you. And help us to rejoice in the forgiveness and the fellowship that you invite us to enter into as we do so. Help us to worship you now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
second point is urgent priority. Are you making time to gather with your church family to fast and to pray? Joel in verses 15 and 16 talks about it five times. He says, consecrate, gather, consecrate, assemble, gather. It's the importance of coming together. You get that. There's repetition to get us to sense of this really matters. And then he goes on to give reasons why people shouldn't exclude themselves. So if you've been newly married, you, you're not excused. <laughs> you know, if you're uh, nursing a baby, you're not excused. No one, the whole point is saying nobody is excused. Everybody needs to come together to gather with their church family as the people of God. Now, in this season, I think that church leaders have become a little bit like school teachers, hearing all sorts of dog-ate-my-homework-like excuses for not showing up, online or, or in person. Things like, you know, um, it's just, I can't, I can't connect with the worship. I just can't, I can't do it. Doesn't, doesn't, I don't like it like that. Or, I've got to keep fit class. It just, it clashes, so it's just not, it's not as important for me. Now, I'm, I'm sorry if I'm sounding a bit blunt. I don't mean to be harsh. I'm not here to condemn you. Um, and there's so much grace and mercy that is certainly coming in this message soon. But I do want to let the alarm clock prophetic word of God come home to you. It's said that right now that um, FOMO, fear of missing out, is being overtaken by Hogo, the hassle of going out. And people who kind of had even pre the new variant booked into restaurants and things like that, but just weren't showing up. And there's a sense in which I, I get that. You know, I'm an introvert. I like staying at home. I like my me time and my evenings rather than going out and all that kind of stuff. But there is something wonderfully special when the church comes together to gather, even if we can only do that online together at the same time. It's powerful. Psalm 133, God says that where people dwell together in unity, there the Lord commands the blessing. In Acts chapter 2, 120 people were gathered together in unison and the Spirit came in power upon them. Hebrews chapter 10 talks about not neglecting the important practice of meeting together and being the church family. It honours God. It glorifies him that we prioritise coming together as he's asked us to, to serve his purposes, to minister to one another, to care for one another, to truly love one another, and so on, that we might witness of that love to those around us by our common gathering in unity. And actually, God's ways work. And that, I suppose, shouldn't really surprise us, but research shows that being together and gathering has many, many <laughs> benefits. In actual fact, it's got a massive reduction in risk to death, to divorce rate, depression, those all go down if you regularly start showing up as part of a church family. Will you? Will you this year make it a priority to, to meet together in life groups, attending become courses, being with us on Sundays, being with us to pray? The third point is heartfelt petition. Are you praying for the glory of God? Verse 17 says, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. 
Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? So much of our praying can be, God, do this for me. God, give this to me. Now, there's a place for that. But if that's the majority of our praying, we are missing it. You're missing it. If that's primarily how you're praying. Because we're meant to be praying urgently for God to glorify himself through the church. That God would revive and awaken the church. That we would live out the fullness that he has won for us. That we should be praying along with the Apostle Paul and how he prays throughout the New Testament. For the church to be fully alive. To realise the power that God has given the church. That we would be better representatives of God on the earth. That we would bring greater glory to him. That people might not say, where is their God? Mockingly. But there is their God in the midst of them. Wow! This community only only makes sense because of God. What authenticity, what humility, what love, what compassion, what mercy, what justice, what miraculous phenomena. This is amazing. That's how we should pray. How could you pray? How could you pray and plan to pray more like that in 2022? The fourth point is heavenly pity. Are you touched by God's affection for you? Verse 18, then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. What precious, precious words. One of the best chapters I think I may have ever read um, from a book other than the Bible is from J.I. Packer's Knowing God. And it's the chapter, chapter 17, the jealous God. And he talks about God condescending, that jealousy of for God is not like envy with an evil thing, but it is a righteous jealousy. He, it's, it's a praiseworthy zeal to preserve something supremely precious. And to God, believers are that precious thing that he, and we see this so clearly in Christ, comes as the loving, perfect husband to guard us from any lesser false loves that would harm or destroy us, to hold us to himself. God is so full of love. He's so full of beautiful pity, beautiful mercy, beautiful grace. Jesus, who reveals the heart of the Father, he comes, doesn't he? Not with cursing on his lips for sinners, but with blessing. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the peacemakers and, and so on. He comes with blessing on his lips. He comes with an invitation to all those who feel so weak and struggling in life. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, Jesus says he comes demonstrating extraordinary compassion and love that his bowels are described from the very core of his being as an expression of incredible compassion is out of that that he heals the sick and the broken and he has compassion for for sheep without a shepherd no guide to come to them that's why he he comes and he demonstrates this so clearly on the cross where he comes having shed tears for us he now sheds his blood for us so that we we might be saved from all of our sin and be able to see a love, a heavenly love demonstrated to us. That is beautiful and glorious. And now he is in heaven because he loves us, interceding for us, interceding for you, believer. 
He loves you. He's your brother. He's your husband. He's your Lord. He's your savior. He's your friend. And he comes with pity to care for you. You're the apple of his eye. You're his delight. You are the joy that was set before him that enabled him to endure the shame and scorning, torturous pain of the cross. He loves you. He delights in you. He has mercy abundant for you. As you humble yourself and repent, He, if you confess your sins, he will forgive. If you repent, he will bring about restoration. This is what God is like. He, he wants you to know he's generous and merciful and abundantly with it. This is the good heart of God towards all who would believe. I wonder, do you know his affection for you? Do you sense it? If not, is it time in the days, weeks, months ahead throughout this year that you got under the waterfall of God's affectionate love for you? And you can do that by reading the scriptures, by studying them. By knowing Christ and in knowing Christ, knowing the heart of the Father in the power of the Holy Spirit, making real how much God loves you. If you want to know where to start, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and instead of reading the word love there, put the word God there. Because God is love. And so you can say God is kind. God keeps no record of wrongs. God is not arrogant. God, God loves. He is the most tender-hearted being in all existence, and he has love for you. The final point is abundant provision. Are you rejoicing in the promise of God's presence? In the latter part of chapter 2, we see the blessings that flow from real repentance, vindication, Victory over enemies, abundant fruitfulness, mind-bogglingly brilliant uh, transformation, years of suffering restored. Why? How is all of this happening? Verse 27 says, You shall know that I am in your midst. God is present, manifestly, tangibly with his people. And that's what happened at Pentecost. 50 days after Jesus' resurrection, 120 people were gathered in an upper room in unity, in one accord, it says they devoted, they devoted themselves to prayer. And the Holy Spirit came and the room was filled with the presence of God. And they were filled. And some began to speak in new languages that they'd never learned and proclaiming the good news of the gospel. There was so much joy, joy awakening. People thought they were drunk. <laughs> they were high on salvation. It was the joy of salvation overflowing. Oh, how he loves me. He is jealous for me. And I must tell the world this good news. Peter, who was previously fearful having denied Christ, now stands up, utterly courageous, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and explains what's going on. And he refers back to these very verses from Joel chapter 2. That this is God's heart for his people. 
His desire is to pour out his presence in abundance, to clothe his church with power from on high. He is still in the same business of seeking to do that today. And no one's excluded. It comes up. He wants all flesh, every believer, young and old, male and female, slave and free. He just wants to pour out his presence. Jesus put it like this. How much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him, those who ask him in prayer? Are we going to be a church in 2022 that will be really contending and asking God you have promised your presence oh we need your presence we want to be a church that is full of your presence overflowing from amongst us that you are tangibly known to be in our midst it's this glorious ministry of the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the one who comes to strengthen and fortify us by helping us know deep and the, in, the, in the central core part of us that we are beloved children of God and nothing can separate us from his love. Come hell or high water, we are safe, saved forever. And he wants to empower us to give us gifts and anointing and, and, and enabling to clothe us with power from on high so we can go out amongst and do the mission of God in this world world so that they will know we are his children god is in that business and that flows that outworks as the scriptures have been teaching us and church history teaches us that these revivals renewals breakouts of the spirit the presence of god amongst people that they typically flow out of churches and Christians that get serious about prayer, who repent, there's nothing in them to grieve the Holy Spirit that would keep him away or at bay. The tangible presence of God amongst us, they fast, they pray for it. This is, this is really what births revivals. I heard a story some years ago of a church in America that got really serious about prayer. And then they decided that some of them were going to pray and fast for the presence of God, seeking the spirit to break out amongst them for two years. And around about the end of two years, they started to see God move and people were drawn. The presence of God was there and people were drawn. Thousands of people started to show up to this church. 4,600 people came to faith in Jesus Christ, crossed that line of faith, trusted the Lord for the first time. Amazing healings were taking place. An extraordinary outbreak of God's presence and his power. Now we can't guarantee that that will happen. God is sovereign. But I tell you what we can do is we can be faithful and obedient to what he urges us to do. Real repentance, deep penitence, urgent priority, gathering together to fast and to pray. To praying for the glory of God knowing his affection for us, pleading the promise that he's given of pouring out his Holy Spirit upon us. I tell you, if we do that, we will not only know the joy of salvation so much more deeply ourselves, but it will overflow and we will know the joy of seeing hundreds and hundreds of people come to know the Saviour for themselves. That's what I'm believing for in 2022. What about you? One of the ways that we can apply this fairly immediately is we would like to restart up our pre-service prayer meeting, the 1010 
prayer meeting, which interestingly is an outworking of John chapter 10, verse 10 in many ways, praying for the abundant life, praying that the deceptions of the devil would be defeated by the victory of Christ on the cross so that many believers and non-believers would encounter the fullness of life, the abundant life that Jesus offers. And so we'd love to find a way at the beginning of this year to do this in person, online if necessary, if we can't, but both perhaps, but to meet together, to gather together, to pray, and to fast for God's presence. We need his presence. We don't want to go without his presence. And the crisis really is all about stirring us to recognize, oh, how we need him. And oh, he is faithful to come and pour out his presence if we ask him. Would you join us this year? Would you pray with us? Oh Lord, we thank you so much for how generous and abundantly faithful you are. And Lord, I'm asking that you would stir us, that you would send your spirit out to awaken us and give us a hunger for you, a hunger for more of you an expectation for you to move, a belief in the power of prayer, a belief in the importance of prayer and a belief in the importance of gathering to pray with other believers, Lord. And we are in faith that when we do this, you will respond and pour out your Holy Spirit and enable and equip and clothe your church, Lord, that you would be seen powerfully in the midst of us, that we might know more the joy of your salvation and more the joy of hundreds of of people coming to belief, coming to faith in you this year for your glory. Do it, Lord. Do it again. Let your spirit come. Pour out your spirit on us, we pray. We want your presence. We hunger for you. We love you, God. And we want others to come to know your wonderful love and affection for them as well. Do it, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to Sermon Audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.